Acts chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12. We've been going through Acts this semester. Um, so we have a lot of things have happened up to this point. But you know, looking at this passage, I've been thinking about big life changes. Those big things that happen in our lives that, that change. Some are, in our, some are in our control and some are not. Um, the thing is, is that these life changes, these big life changes, typically cause some tension and cause some friction. Uh, I think about um, earlier this year when Mark Rick was named as the head coach of University of Miami. And he, that was a big life change for some of us. Um, but certainly for him, and there, in one of his first events, there's this picture with him, and he's with a recruit or a new player, and he's flashing up the, the Miami Hurricane sign. But if you look closely, he's wearing a UGA belt. He's got a black belt with a big G on the side of it. This poor guy had to replace his whole wardrobe just because of changing a job. Now, that's a pretty, it's a big life change, but there's other big life changes that, that we face too. Uh, and really, there's no bigger life change than following Jesus. It affects everything. When someone first follows Jesus, there's usually a tension between their old life and their new. And in a lot of ways, that tension never fully goes away. Um, when someone first follows Jesus, hopefully they're part of a good church and they have a, a, a new family, a new community. But that also means that they lose some relationships or that those, some of those relationships change. Those people that you used to spend a lot of time with, you can't spend as much time with before it's because they kind of take you in some bad places. I was talking to uh, a former co-worker who told me that earlier this year he had quit drinking because he, he was a pretty bad alcoholic. And he says, I just can't hang out with my best friend anymore because he's like, well, why don't we just go to the bar and just have one drink? He's like, well, I can't do that because I don't want just one drink. And so he, he's like, there has to be a change in that relationship. And that's the way it is a lot of times when we come to follow Jesus. There has to be some changes in our relationships because our purpose, our priorities, our perspectives, and our practices change. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so you see that in an individual's life. But what happens when that change affects an entire community as it did here in Acts? the tension is just multiplied. If, it, if it's that big a change in one person's life, imagine when you have thousands who are having that change as we see here in, in the book of Acts. See, the tension was very tangible for the early church. Now you have to think, the early church was made up mostly of Jews, Jews who had been raised in the Jewish way of worshiping God, who, who had all this religious practice that had now been fulfilled and set aside because of Jesus. See, under the old way, there was this focus on the law and focus on tradition and this focus on sacrifices to cover sin. But under this new, there's grace, there is discipleship, there's obedience that comes from love of God. See, they had been redeemed. You know, and that word redeemed is like when you take a coupon and you redeem it for your free Chick-fil-A sandwich. It, it means that something was, 
something was bought, something was ransomed. But it was ransomed for a purpose. They weren't just redeemed to, all right, just go on and be happy now. No, they were redeemed for a purpose. And so there's this friction between their old life and their new. So let's look at Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12 where we, where we left off last week. So Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed." See, a redeemed life leads to radical relationships. We see this in this passage, verse 12 through 16. See, the early church was peculiar. They were weird in comparison to the, the community at large. But they were, the presence and the power of God was among them. And because of this, God unified, attracted, and repelled people. We see here in verse 12 that they were of one accord. Not a Honda. It just means that they were, there was unity here. There was a unity of the, of the believers' lives. They were of one heart. They were of one mind. They were all together in one location on a regular basis. They had one purpose. And we see even in the passage before this that they even shared their possessions with one another. If somebody had need, they gave them what they needed. They sold property to take care of the people who were in need. So they were unified. There was great unity among the early church. And they attracted people. You see that there were signs and wonders going on. These were miraculous healings. These were supernatural uh, power that was at work here. This was not normal run-of-the-mill things. This was supernatural. See, unlike chapter 3, where the blind man was healed by Peter, it says, you know, he didn't know what to expect. He didn't know that healing was even an option. But now people do. They've seen people being healed, and they're like, okay, we're sick. Somebody is sick. Somebody I care for is hurt. We're going to take them to the apostles because people are being healed. The, The word had gotten out about what was going on with this early church. They didn't understand it most likely, but they understood that something supernatural was happening. So that attracted people. It attracted those who were in need. And, and, you know, this should be instructive for us. The church should always be attractive to those who are hurting, just as Jesus was. It wasn't the people who had all their stuff together who were around Jesus. It was the people who were hurting, who were attracted to Him. Now, there will be some who come to only see what they can get. To say, what can I get from you? But even that is an opportunity. We can't say, well, you're just in it with your handout. We're all in it with our handout, if we're really honest with ourselves. In verse 15, we see something that's a little unusual. It may strike us as a, a little bit weird. It says um, that things were increasing in such a number that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow 
might fall on any one of them. Now, there's, there's an element of superstition here, just to be honest. And we, but we see some similar acts, even with Jesus. You know, in Matthew 9, there's the woman who said, if I can just touch the, the fringe on his coat, I'll, I could be healed. And in, in Acts 19, we see that handkerchiefs that, had been, that Paul had had were being carried to people who were sick. Now, this is something that is descriptive of what happened in the early church. It was not something that's prescriptive. We should not be praying over prayer cloths and sending them others, thinking that that somehow carries some supernatural power to them. Now, it may be that that's a reminder that other people are praying for you, but it's not something that, that we see anywhere in Scripture God tells us to do that. And, but even in this, there was grace in their ignorance because it says that all, it says, it's talking about all the people that were being brought were being healed. Maybe not when Peter's shadow passed over them, but, they, but people were being healed that were being brought to the apostles. But the principle here is that some people will be drawn to you because of your faith especially if they see God at work in you. If they see your life changed in a way that is out of the ordinary, they're like, okay, there's something there. And a lot of people will be attracted to that because they're like, I don't know what that is, but I want some of it. But on the other side, there's others who are going to be repelled by the change in your life when you follow Jesus. See, we we see here in... um, in verse 15, or 13, it says, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. You're like, whoa, what's, that's kind of two different things here. None of the rest dared to associate with them. See, there was real fear about associating with the church. And the reason why was that most people were feared being arrested or facing persecution as the apostles had, as likely others had. But it also meant that the people who were merely curious about what was going on kind of held back because those who had less pure motives likely took notice of what happened just before this with Ananias and Sapphira. So there were no more fakers. There was nobody in here trying to make a name for themselves because they saw how that worked out. You had these two people who tried to do something to make themselves look good to everyone else. And God struck them down because they were lying to God. So there's no more fakers. You know, if, if, if you knew coming to church that there's a chance that God might strike you dead, you would really think about things a little bit differently before you just come strolling into the meeting. See, the people with evil motives fear the power and presence of God and with good reason. God is not someone you play around with. We saw this, that even when Jesus would come around people who were possessed by demons, the demons would recognize who Jesus is and says, why are you here? Are you here to torment us before the time? When God's presence is there, fear and reverence should be there. And if you're a person who's in opposition to God and you come into the presence of God, it should hit you. And you should realize that I'm not where I need to be. Either I need to change or I need to leave. And see, this is instructive for us today. And even looking for today and looking into the future, see, there's less general favor toward Christianity in our world today. 
But those who are committed to Jesus, those who are believers, are more committed than ever. We see this greater contrast between those who may have some type of cultural Christianity as been what they've grown up with versus those who really believe in Jesus and let Him be the guide of their life. These changes lead to a greater contrast. And true believers will be more obvious because a redeemed life leads to a radical response. We see that a redeemed life leads to radical relationships. It also leads to a radical response. In verse, let's start in verse 17 and read from there. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked and quite securely, locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intent to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, those in power the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other Jewish religious leaders and government leaders, they were jealous. They were jealous of these guys who were getting such a response from people. They were, thousands of people were coming to follow Jesus and the religious leaders had no control over it. They didn't know what they could do about it. And they feared losing their influence, which we see in verse 17. And the leaders took aggressive action. They grabbed these guys, they put them in jail, and they would even later beat them. There was contempt for Jesus. They wouldn't even say his name. They said, this man. They wouldn't even say his name. It was was as they were using that, that phrase, this man, in a derogatory way because they didn't want to speak the name of Jesus. And in verse 28, they make this claim Um, It says, And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intent to bring this man's blood upon us. The reality is that that Jesus' blood was already on them. 
Because back when Jesus was, after his trial, when he was brought before the people, it was the religious leaders who were stirring the people up to ask for Jesus to be crucified and for Barabbas to be released. And even in Matthew 27, the people were saying, his blood shall be on us and our children. See, they had already said, we'll accept the blame for this. And then these months later, when the, when the apostles were teaching about Jesus, the religious leaders were like, don't, don't bring this man's blood on us. And they said, no, it's on you. And you've already admitted that it's on you. They were trying to deny their role in what had happened. But the apostles knew the truth. And they obeyed God despite all of this. In verse 19, we see that even prison would not keep them from their, their mission. You know, God had provided this miraculous release. It was, not, it was not like a great escape movie or anything like that where they made it out. This was a miraculous exit from this prison. But it was still up to the apostles to be faithful and obedient to preach the gospel. Knowing my heart, if I had just been set free and I'd already gone through this, I might have hit town or at least laid low for a while. But no, God had told them, go preach the gospel right back where you were arrested the last time. And that's what they did. They went back to preach. They disobeyed the religious leaders with no sign of reluctance, even though they were aware of what the likely consequences were be. They'd already been warned twice not to do this. And they continued. And in, and in a way, Peter's response here is a continuation of the encounter that he had last time they were draw, drawn before him. And he answers his own rhetorical question. Back in chapter 4, verse 19, when speaking to these re- religious leaders, he says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So he kind of puts it in a form of question. He says, well, whether it's right to obey God or you, you be the judge. Well, here he's straightforward in what he says. He says, we must obey God rather than men. So he's becoming more forward with what he's saying. He makes it plain that he's going to disobey what they tell him to do. See, the apostles were compelled by what they had witnessed personally and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. What they had witnessed was this man that they had followed for three years face a bloody death on a cross. He was clearly dead. They had taken him from the cross. They had put him in a grave. They put the stone in front of it. He was gone. They were confused. They didn't know what was going on, even though Jesus had told them this would happen. But then three days later, they get word that the grave is empty. And then soon after, they see Jesus himself. And they don't just see him. They touch him. They spend time with him. They share a meal with him. This was not some group delusion. This was something that hundreds of people saw. Jesus had risen from the grave and was walking among them, spent a significant amount of time with them before ascending into heaven. But then even beyond that, they had the testimony of the Holy Spirit. See, when somebody is speaking of what they had personally seen and experienced, it's very difficult to deny it. If somebody says, I saw this happen, there's not much you can tell that person to convince them otherwise. But even if somebody had not seen the works of Jesus, even if somebody had not seen him come out of the grave, 
had not seen this supposed dead man walking among them. The Holy Spirit would give them understanding. The Holy Spirit had been sent into the hearts of the believers to be there to teach and to testify to them. But also those who had not yet followed Jesus, the Holy Spirit was there to convict them and to help them understand what had actually happened. The apostles continued to defy these religious leaders. Even the, but really their defiance of the religious leaders was obedience to God. You know, and as we talked about, as we've talked about previously, if it comes between what your government and your other leaders tell you and what God has told you to be right, you do what God tells you to do. Our general rule is that we should be, obey those who are leaders of us until they tell us to do something that goes against the law of God. But let's continue. We see that a redeemed life leads to a radical, radical relationships. It leads to a radical response, just radical actions. But a redeemed life leads also to a radical resolve. Let's look at verse 30, starting in verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We may not catch everything that's really at play here. See, those who were leading the charge against the apostles were the Sadducees. We see in verse 17 that it was the high priest and his group, the sect of the Sadducees, that were leading the charge against the apostles. But Gamaliel was a Pharisee. Not quite comparable comparable to Republicans and Democrats, but they were of different groups within the leadership of Israel. They had different religious beliefs. They, they still worshiped the same God, but they had different understanding of Scripture. The Pharisees' beliefs were actually closer to the true gospel than that of the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurre- resurrection, so they were sad, you see. That's how you remember that one. So the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the, or the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And we see Jesus used this in his encounters with them, and Paul does later as well. 
And even Jesus says to a Pharisee, he said, you are not far from the kingdom in Mark 12. They had a lot of things right, but they weren't quite there. Now, Gamaliel likely had some mixed motives in keeping the religious leaders from taking this action. They, he want, they wanted to kill the apostles, which was really beyond their authority to do. But, so he very wisely offers them some advice. Now, Gamaliel it was a well-known, well-respected Pharisee. Um, Paul even refers to him in Acts 22 as being, having been taught by Gamaliel. So he was very well known, and we see he's referenced in a lot of other Jewish writings outside of uh, Scripture. So he was well known. He was, you know, he was somebody that when he spoke would have commanded respect from those who, who heard him. Now there are some Christian traditions that honor Gamaliel as a saint, thinking that this event shows that he, was, uh, that he may have become a believer, but we really don't see any evidence of that. That he, uh, that he became a believer. Even some of the ref- references later in his life show him still in opposition to, to the way of Christ. So his advice that he gave here was not out of you know, some uh, sympathy for the apostles or for Jesus, but it was more of a way to keep the peace, to keep things from escalating beyond where they should have been. But it was also just another way for him to offer a rebuttal, kind of a jab at the Sadducees who were really leading this charge here. So he had, I think, some mixed motives in what he was saying here. But he actually gives some really wise advice for this situation here. Because there have been a lot of rebellions. You remember that Israel is now occupied by Rome. They are kept under control. They have limited authority to control their own destiny here. And so because of this, there were a, that Jewish rebellions were not uncommon. They were Some of them were more political in nature. Some of them were quite violent in nature. So these were not uncommon. And there are many that have been recorded in Jewish history you know, before the time of Jesus and then in the short time afterwards. And all of these rebellions, this discontent among uh, the Jews under Roman rule, eventually led to Rome coming in and destroying Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, you know, not long after the events that we're talking about here. It was a recurring problem. And he mentions Theodos here in verse 36, that he claimed to be somebody. That's, I could probably preach all day on folks who claim to be somebody. Um, but even, but he actually had some followers. He had, you know, 400 people that were following him. So he had a, had a pretty good crowd. But he, but he was eventually defeated, as were all these other rebellions. But where all these other rebellions failed... God's subversive kingdom will ultimately succeed. Following Jesus is a rebellion. It's a rebellion against the ways of this world, then and now. Because if you're following Jesus, your life is going to look different than everybody else's. Your priorities are going to be different. Your decisions are going to be different. And the Bible is full of victories that went against all expectations and all logic of what was going to happen. Look at Moses. This man, who was a child of a slave, went up against the king of the country. Now, Granted, he was doing it at the command of God, and it was God's supernatural power that gave the release. But if you had seen that from the beginning, you're like, eh, there's no way this is going to work. But it did. You look at Joshua and the repeated victories that he had after the time of Moses. 
You can look at David, how just uncalculable it was that the youngest son, the runt of the family, is the one that's picked to become king of their country. And you look at Gideon, you know, he goes to battle and God says, you got too many people. I know you're outnumbered, but if I'm going to get the glory for it, you need to be outnumbered even worse. And he gets the victory. See, the victory of the church is a spiritual victory that will become a physical victory when Jesus returns. It's a spiritual victory now, but will be a physical victory when he returns. See, Jesus often said the kingdom of of God is at hand or the kingdom of God has come near. So even when he was walking the earth, the kingdom was there. Those who were following him were part of the kingdom. It's this idea of already but not yet. The victory has already been won through his death on the cross. Each of us are living in that victory, but it won't be fully realized until he returns and the earth is restored. It's already, but not yet. And until then, persecution is an honor. You see that in verse 41? It says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I would have been rejoicing that I wasn't killed. That was would have been first of my mind. It's like, those guys wanted to kill us, and yeah, we got beat, but... We're okay. No, that's not what they're rejoicing in. They're rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame. See, following Jesus is never marked by everything going your way. It's just not. If you, we have a section back there of biographies of Christians who have done tremendous things for the kingdom. Read any one of them. None of them went the way that we would have wanted them to. There was always tragedy. There was always opposition. We see that throughout Scripture. Nobody has a clear sailing Christian walk. In other words, don't be discouraged when persecution, rejection, ridicule, when those things come your way, don't be discouraged. Be honored. If those things are coming your way because of your obedience to Jesus... You should be encouraged by that. You should be honored. Now, if you're being a jerk and those things come your way, that's a different thing altogether. But if you're being obedient to Jesus and these things come at you, you should be encouraged by that. You should be honored. Because following Jesus will cost us. And knowing this ahead of time will help us not be discouraged. You know, there, there are people who think, well, I became a Christian, shouldn't everything, shouldn't I make A's on all my tests now? And, you know, all this. No, that's not what following Jesus is about. And if you know that ahead of time, it will help us not to be discouraged and it'll help us resolve to go the distance. We should be challenged and encouraged by what these men faced. But we should also be challenged and encouraged that there are many people in our world today who are facing very similar things. In China, there's been a widespread campaign of removing crosses off of church buildings. In some places, they completely destroy the buildings altogether. And if you try to oppose that, you try to protest that, they'll throw you in jail. In Russia, there is anti-terrorism law that basically prohibits evangelism. It prohibits preaching, 
and it, preach, uh, it prohibits prayer outside of registered church buildings. Their idea with this is they want to avoid religious extremists. But the effects of that law is it basically prohibits you from doing anything related to your faith outside of a church building. And your church building has to be registered with the government. There was actually a minister who was recently charged for holding a service in his own home. He was arrested. I think he had to spend some time in jail and had to pay a fine. That was in Russia. In Iran, converting from Islam is punishable by death for men and lifetime imprisonment for women. And yet, the church is growing faster in Iran than in any other country in the world. Can you imagine that? In North Korea, where it's possibly the hardest countries to be a believer right now, believers are being hung on crosses over fires. There's reports of them being crushed by steamrollers. They're being put into concentration camps and forced labor. And there's even been cases of sexual violence against Christians. There's places where it is deadly to be a follower of Jesus right now. And it's hard for us to look at our lives here and call what we experience here persecution in light of this. But the West, you know, Europe, North America, these, you know, our home is increasingly hostile to Christianity. See, our Christian values are no longer what's the norm in our country. You know, a generation or two ago, that was the norm, but it's not now. Statistically, they've seen what they call the rise of the nuns, and I'm not referring to like black and white wearing nuns. I'm referring to like nuns as in when they fill out a survey and say, what is your religious affiliation? They say none. So years ago, people would just default to saying Christian, even if they really weren't a Christian. They were just like, well, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, so I must be a Christian. That was the default in our country. But people are being, actually being more honest and saying, really, I have no religious affiliation. And we see it to where Sunday, even Sunday morning, is no longer set aside as a time for worship. It's just not. See, our culture has normalized legalized and glorifies things that are in opposition to God's plan for humanity. And we saw these things coming. We saw these things happening, you know, even 50 years ago. And there was this idea of a cultural war that that started. If you, if you around my age, you grew up in the midst of this. But a culture war was not the answer for the early church and it isn't for us either. See, the reality is, is that we tried that and we lost. What God tells us is this. From Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And here's the key. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, 
taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, our battle is not against other people. Our battle is not, even in the case of these apostles and these religious leaders, it was, their battle was not against them. It was against the evil that is in this world. See, when the leaders of those Jewish rebellions that we talked about, when those leaders were put to death, the rebellions ended. They faded out. And when Jesus was crucified, now His disciples scattered, but they didn't stay scattered. There's something that happened. The resurrection of Jesus pulled them back together. Because if Jesus had just stayed in the grave, they would have just scattered out. But He rose and they came back together. And so the church's very existence, the fact that the church exists, is compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You see, something happened to cause the first disciples to risk everything, even the death, even after the death of their leader, because he wasn't dead. He had risen. And here we are 2,000 years later, still meeting Jesus. Now, there are other religious groups that have been around for a long period of time. So I'm not saying this is the proof that Christianity exists. But we see in that first century of Jerusalem, there had been rebellion after rebellion that had all been put down. But here we see a different kind of rebellion. And we see one that 2,000 years later still exists. Now, church history is full of a lot of not good things, a lot of it perpetrated by people who claimed to be believers but weren't. But 2,000 years later, the name of Jesus is still being mentioned and worshipped around the world it had in virtually every country, in all these different languages. Something happened. So that's on the big picture. But look at the little picture also. Your life. If you're a follower of Jesus and your life has drastically changed because of that, that is compelling evidence for the truth of who Jesus is. Now, people change their life for a lot of different reasons. But when you see a life changed by Jesus, when you see one that was headed in one direction and then make the U-turn and head in another, people will notice. People pay attention to that. You know, this morning we've had several people out running that the Athens, the at half, the half marathon. You know, Paul uses athletics and particularly running as a metaphor for the Christian uh, life, particularly in First Corinthians nine. Now, when you start a half marathon, you know how long it is—a little over thirteen miles. You do a five k, you know it's five kilometers, ten kilometers, whatever the race happens to be. But as a believer, we don't know how long our race is. Some of our races may be 80, 90, 100 years. Some of them may not last the rest of this day. We don't know. 
That's it's part of being human. We don't know those things. But the race you are running right now, you may think this is it. This is what I'm here for, to run this race. But the race you're running right now may be training for the next race that God has you for. You don't know what the next part of your life holds. When you're, when I'm not a great runner, I can do a 5K and not hate myself later that day. But if I was going to do a half marathon, I'd need to start training now for next year's. And my race would have to get better. So every time I ran a race, it'd be preparation for that next race. When you go to the gym, you lift a certain amount of weights in preparation for lifting heavier weights. See, when the race we're running right now may be training for the next race that, you got, that God has for you. But when we run, we have to run as if we're running a marathon. Because on average, most of us will live a fairly long life. But that also means that to prepare for the marathon, to run the marathon, we have to run through pain. It could be pain of persecution. It could be pain of rejection. It could be the pain of lost relationships. It could be all those things, but we have to run through that pain. And we also have to run in such a way that even if we fall, fall behind on the sprint, we're still going to make it on the marathon. You all see those people who maybe you're not really thinking through and they get to do a long race and they just run all out for like the first two or three miles and then you pass them a little bit later on as they're struggling to breathe because they didn't run in such a way to run the whole race. They tried to do it all right now. You can't do that. And you can't do that with our walk with Jesus. We all, especially folks like my age and younger, we've been taught that if you haven't figured it out by 30 or 40, that you know, I mean, we're surrounded by people who've already made their millions and created companies and done all this great good by the time they're 30. And I'm like, man, I'm a loser. You know, it, it, you know, I just feel like I failed sometimes. You know, I, I've listened to some podcasts about church leaders and he's like, yeah, I got to 50 and realized it was just time for me to step back because I've already done all this stuff. I was like, really? You know, I'm, I, I hope to maybe be hitting my peak of whatever it is I'm doing around that time. Um, so you have to run for the long haul, not for the sprint. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He endures to the end. And don't be confused as that being, well, if I don't hang in there to the end, I'm not really saved. No, he's saying because you are saved, you will make it to the end. So don't hurt yourself trying to run a marathon in the first two miles. Prepare to run the marathon. Live in such a way that no matter if it's persecution, pain, rejection, opposition, whatever it is, you will still get through it. Because God is with you. He is the one who makes sure that you endure to the end.